But what we're going to be focusing on is a, um, a precious truth that God looks on the heart and that God looks directly and always peers straight into the heart, straight past the outward and straight into the inward. He looks on the heart and that's a truth that um, has encouraged my heart greatly as a Christian, kept me sober as a Christian and um, for those that weren't there on Friday, I can't repeat everything um, I said on Friday, we'd probably be here till midnight and I'm alright if you're, you're willing to do that but um, I'm just going to recap what we touched on on Friday and continue to continuation on uh, this fundamental truth that God looks on the heart. So let's read these two verses that we were zooming in on. In, and um, it's verses 6 and 7. And before we read it, just to quickly give a quick background by way of recapping. Um, at this point, the kingdom had been stripped from Saul. And stripped in the sense that God told him that I'm going to take it away from you. He was still king at this point. But God uh, told Samuel that, look, I want you to fill your horn with oil and I want you to go anoint a king from one of the sons of Jesse. And, uh, and he, all he simply told him was, go up and go to the house of Jesse. There's a king there. Uh, there's, there's, there's one there that I want you to anoint as king. And this was because Saul uh, disobeyed the Lord and Saul... Um, continued in his ways and did not have genuine repentance. He only had a fake um, face repentance, but not really a genuine brokenness over his sin. And he just kind of wanted to, um, you know, I'm sorry, let's just move on with everything uh, kind of repentance, as if it wasn't a, it was, as if it was, it was just a little thing what he did, as if it was nothing. Uh, that he did and so it greatly displeased the Lord and he continued with a heart like this and so much so that again the kingdom the Lord says I'm taking the kingdom away from you it's not going to continue with you and so here he sends Samuel to go down to the house of Jesse and uh, Jesse asks a question are you coming in peace in verse 5 and he says I'm come to sacrifice unto the Lord sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice and he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, verse 7, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord looketh on the heart. On the heart. Let's have a word of prayer uh, before we continue. Father, we've come several times before you, Lord, and committed our time to you. And we're thankful that we can do that, Lord. And we're thankful that we can commit our ways to you. And Lord, you know we don't do that by ritual. You know we don't do that just for the sake of it. We're committing our service to you, Lord, this time to you is because we want you, Lord, to govern this service. You are the one that is, is, is to be lifted up in this service. You are the very reason this service is even taking place. And so we acknowledge you. And give you praise and Lord, want, we desire that you would have your proper place in our midst. But even as we think on this thought, Lord, no doubt in our hearts, we desire you to have your proper place. And my Lord, we commit the preaching of the word of God to you once again. I ask and pray you'd be pleased to take your servant. Be pleased, Lord, to educate every one of us. Be pleased, Lord, to refresh our hearts and encourage our hearts. Be pleased, Lord, to continue to lead us and guide us into thy perfect way and into thy perfect will. Uh, Father, we pray you'd be pleased to do as only you can do, and that's to enlighten our understanding. And that you'd be pre pleased, Father, to open our eyes, just like you did the disciples, that they would understand the Scriptures. And uh, Father, you're the only one that can work in the heart of man in such a way to show man where we truly stand. 
And Father, if there's any, Lord, as we've been praying, even just tonight, Lord, and even prior to this, if there's any in our midst that don't know you as Saviour, I pray you'd be pleased to work there in their heart also. You're the only one that can convince people, Lord. You're the only one that can convict within, Lord, of their sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And so I do pray, Lord, you'd be pleased, Lord, to bring those ones that are seeking after truth to repentance unto salvation, that they would come to know this joy there is found in Jesus, this peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Father, I do pray you'd be pleased to have your way with us this evening. Our eyes were upon thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God looks on the heart. And that's a very sobering truth. To recap, we're, we're seeing in verse 6 how Samuel saw Eliab, the first uh, son or, or the son of uh, Jesse and in Samuel's mind he sees a man here of great stature he sees a man here that uh, you know concerning his countenance in reference to his comeliness he was a handsome man and uh, and and he in looking upon his his comeliness and looking upon the height of his, of his stature he thought surely the Lord's anointed is before him now, I don't ultimately know why Samuel automatically assumed that this is him. And my assumption, and it's purely an assumption, is that because this somewhat resembles the description of King Saul. King Saul was a man that was great in height and stature. And King Saul was a man, he, he says he was a handsome man too. And so perhaps Samuel thought that, oh, he looks kind of like King Saul and maybe this is the one to replace him. I'm not sure, but nevertheless, God wanted to teach Samuel a lesson and I believe he wants us to learn that lesson today, or I should say remember that lesson, that fundamental truth that you and I know full well that God looks on the heart. He begins by telling uh, Samuel, uh, Samuel looked not on his countenance. The idea of look is to, is to scan intently, even carries the idea of uh, having favor for. And he's saying, don't look in this way, Samuel. Don't, don't scan intently upon his countenance, again, in reference to his comeliness. He's a, he looks like a good-looking man. He's a handsome man. Don't, don't give favor to these things. And he's saying, don't look intently on these things, these, this appearance, the things that are seen. And he goes on to say, also, look, don't scan, also, and don't give favor or have, have respect for the height of his countenance. He was a tall man. Samuel, just because he's tall doesn't mean much. And I don't want you to give favor to the fact that he's tall. Don't look upon this because I have refused him. Samuel, you think this is the, this is the choice. And I'm telling you, Samuel, that's not my choice. And how oftentimes we think that this is it, this is the choice, but God in His mercy intervenes and helps us to understand that, no, that's not my choice. And this is something that God desires us to always, and I don't want to veer away from the thought of God looking on the heart, but I just want to establish something here. We must be very careful not to just go with something that appears to be it. This is the one. This is surely the Lord's anointed is before him. What assurance that this is it. But God says, no, not so. Not so. You would receive him. I have refused him. And so there's a principle here, and I don't want to labor much on it, whether I touch on it later on or not. We'll see as the Lord leads. But we must be very careful not to just be quick to think that this is the Lord's choice. And the Lord's trying to show us that I have refused this one. This is not my choice. This is not my choice, Samuel. I've rejected him. I've refused him. It's not him. He's not the one. And so he takes the opportunity to teach Samuel this lesson. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. And then he goes on to say what he means by that. What do you mean the Lord sees not as man seeth? Well, this is what I mean. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 
we as men, we always or often scan and look and, and make oftentimes our judgments purely on the basis of outward appearance. And God is saying, I don't, I don't scan this way. I don't inspect in this way. I don't, I don't, I don't uh, judge a matter or discern a matter uh, in this way. My inspection goes well beyond. This is the idea behind uh, uh, looking on the outward appearance. The idea behind looking here is the idea of inspecting something. And he's saying man inspects the outward. And, but I'm not like man. I inspect the heart. And this is what he wants us to understand. That I am not like man, Samuel. And I want you not to see as man sees. Because you know how man sees? We inspect the outward and we make a judgment upon the outward alone that God is saying, no, I don't, I don't inspect this way. I don't look on this. I look on the heart. I look on the heart. The outward appearance is obviously what he's referring to. Looking at things that are visible to the naked eye. The God is saying, I look, I look past that. I look on the heart. Now, how do we describe the heart? And to recap, we tried to describe the heart on Friday night, and I'll attempt to do it once again. And uh, I think when we talk about the heart, it can be used in so many ways in, in, in different contexts. The heart, the, 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 the very center of man, the, the chief part, the vital part. One person ex- described it as the seat of the affections and passions, such as love and joy and grief, and enmity, and courage, and pleasure, and many other things. Uh, The heart, the Bible teaches us, is deceitful, but there's another positive element where God says He wants wants us to love Him with all our heart. And so it's depending on the context, there's there's all this different usage and meaning of the word heart. The, The Bible tells us in Genesis that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart is evil, continually and the Bible oftentimes connects this idea of the thinking and the heart, the thoughts of the heart and uh, we'll look at that a little bit later on too. The heart can be deceived, the heart can also be enlarged, Uh, the heart can be lifted up and the heart can be fixed on something and so it can be used in so many ways but we're talking about the very essence, uh, the very center, the very core, the very vital point, it, it's, it's, it's the heart we're talking about. I want to try and establish it a bit more. You know, we can use it in this way. You know, he, uh, you know, someone has an honest and a good heart, you know, we'd say at times. The Bible tells us you can have an evil heart of unbelief. Uh, the Bible teaches us you can have a willing heart, a heavy heart, sorrow of heart, a hard heart. You can be pure in heart. Even concerning the, the slothful, you can be, or even concerning understanding, you can be slow of heart. It teaches of, of men that are wise in heart, that have an understanding heart. And so the heart, again, is used in many, many ways. Uh, it's in connection with the conscience. It's in connection with the will of man, no doubt about it. Um, but I believe here, if we're going to bring a meaning concerning the heart, that it's no doubt referring to here, I believe, it's talking about the secret meaning, the, the real intention. So we'd, we'd often say something like, the, what's the heart of the matter? And so what are we trying to say? We're trying to get to, to the heart of the matter, the very core, the very, the, 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 let's get right in there. What's the heart of the matter? Used other ways again. You know, we say something, we'd use the phrase, you know, learn it off by heart. What are we talking about? Learn it off by heart. It's hard to explain, but we know what we're talking about. You know, when we say if if someone was uh, thoroughly affected in some way, or perhaps whether he was offended or in a good sense convicted, or we would say something like he took it to heart. He took it to heart. And I know oftentimes that can be um, um, used more in a negative context than in a positive. But what it's simply saying here, and when it's referring to the heart and trying to establish it, it's, we're talking about getting deep. We're, go, we're trying to get to perhaps where there's, this is the very center, this is the very core, this is, this is where God looks. There's a feeble attempt to try and explain the heart, but the heart is the very core and, and depth of man, and God's saying, that's where I look. 
That's what I see. This by no means negates uh, anything to do with the outward. It's not saying, look, it's only about the heart and who cares about the outward. God doesn't teach, teach us that. As a matter of fact, He actually teaches us to discern what's in the heart by the outward. But He's just given the balance here to say that, look, don't just make judgments purely on outward appearance. I want you to look further than that. I want you to look on the heart. On the heart, because that's where I look, Samuel. I'm not making a judgment upon his stature. I'm not making a judgment upon his comeliness. I can see his heart, Samuel. I've refused him. I've refused him. <clears throat> heart. In Scripture, we're often encouraged, especially towards the Lord, to always have our hearts engaged our hearts applied, that we would ensure that our hearts are right. Why? Because of this precious truth that God looks on the heart, straight past the outward. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And He always addressed the heart. And the Pharisees didn't like that. And many people didn't like that. And in addressing the heart, He said some things that would have absolutely knocked us off our chairs and think, whoa, that is, you know why? Because Jesus can see what's in the heart and what he's trying to do is bring out what's in the heart so he can address it there. That's what he always does. <clears throat> he says this in Matthew chapter 5, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. And so this is where Jesus, his constant ministering, was always trying to address the heart. And he is reestablishing, you miss the absolute heart of the law. And he's addressing these ones that would look to lust after a woman and he's saying you think just because you didn't commit the act your heart is right no he says in your heart you've committed the act you laid eyes upon someone that you ought not to lay eyes upon and you've been thinking thoughts toward that someone that you ought not to think thoughts towards that's adultery in the heart that heart is not clean just because you didn't commit the outward act no God can see what's in the heart. And this is what he's trying to establish constantly. I look on the heart. I think of the rich young ruler as well. The rich young ruler. I've kept all this from my youth up until now. What, my, what else should I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, salvation. You and I we tell what we would have told him about salvation. But you know what Jesus said? I want you to sell all that you have. Go and give it to the poor. Follow me, and I'll give you riches in heaven. And what happened to that man? What would we have thought if we heard Jesus say that, if that's the way of salvation, as we're trying to understand it? We would think, that's not the gospel. But you know what Jesus is doing? He's looking on the heart. And this man with his lips is saying, I keep this, I do this, I've done this. You don't love God with all your heart. Mr. Rich Young Ruler, you love your money more than the Master. You want your treasures more than God. And so what did God do? He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't just go tit for tat with him. He just went straight to the heart of the matter. And he says, this is what I want you to do. And come and follow me. And you know what he did? He brought out the heart. And that's where God sees. And that's where God always wants to minister. He wants to minister in the heart. Even the rebuke that Stephen gave before the Sanhedrin. These were the men that, that all looked up to the council. And in making application of his exposition of things of past times. And saying how in times past and constantly again and again and again and again and again how God would send someone but our fathers rejected him and God would send someone but our fathers rejected him and, and that's the constant thrust of why he's trying to establish what happened in past time and he leads up to here and he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ease. What do you think the outward 
Circumcision of the flesh availeth anything? Circumcise your hearts. See, God looks upon the heart. And when you address the heart of the matter, oftentimes you get a reaction. In Stephen's case, it promoted him to glory. They stoned him. You know why? Because he addressed the heart. God looks upon the heart. God sees the heart. We saw how God sees the phony, repented heart. How Judah turned not with the whole heart, but feignedly. We see how God not only sees the phony, repentant heart, we see God sees the fake heart. And I want us to see this. I don't want to labor on every point again, but I want us to see in Proverbs chapter 23. If you turn with me there, keep your place. In Proverbs 23. And it's okay if you're not there already, but from verse 6, I'm just going to read, and it says from verse 6, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to, to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Come, come and eat, come, bring, bring the food, bring the... Da, 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 da. But you know what his heart is saying? can't believe he came. It's a very cultural thing as well. It's, we call it Wejbet at times. And there's a, there's a, I don't know what you'd call it, but there's a, a problem that, that, that's often found. I don't, I don't want to make it just with, with the culture that I was raised in. It's perhaps in many other cultures, in the Jewish culture too, and perhaps others. But there's this thing where outwardly, they seem to be very inviting and very friendly. And, uh, and so it's almost very customary and expected if perhaps someone was walking past that you knew, you'd say, hey, how are you? Come in. Come in for a cup of coffee or come in, for, come in and sit down. And, the, and then the, the answer that should come back is, no, 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 I have to go. And, uh, and, but if they ever came in, the heart of that person would think, I can't believe they came in. And so this is where it's, it's the heart is not there. They, they don't really have a heart to it. This is just being fake and it's a fake heart. Outwardly they seem hospitable. Outwardly they seem like they want to have you. But inwardly their heart is not in it. Their heart is not there. Their heart is not with thee, the Bible says. And God can see when the heart is not there, the heart is not with thee, that's in a very minor scale as to what the proverb, I believe, is talking about. But what we're, what we're talking about here is that God can see the fake heart. God can see when the heart is not there. When it's simply an outward show, it's outward appearance, but no heart. They don't have a heart for it. Even with Ananias and Sapphira, why hath Satan filled thine heart? to do this? Why did you conceive this thing in your heart? To lie to the Holy Ghost. God can see straight into the heart and that's where God addresses all things. All things. We see that I want us to, to turn to 1st Kings chapter 8. Now one thing I want us to also understand in a very practical way, what's the purpose, one of, I should say, one of the reasons, or I should, let, let me rephrase that, sorry. How should this fundamental truth that God knows all things, that God sees all things, that God looks on the heart affect us? How should it affect us? Now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, this is the prayer of dedication. The temple, in dedicating the temple and also the people of God uh, to God and even in the context that if the people of God were to turn away but they turn back to you Lord, that, that Lord you'd, you'd hear from heaven and uh, that you would forgive, verse 39, and do and give to every man according to his ways whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only knowest the hearts of all the children of men. Now notice verse 40. That they may fear thee 
all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. You know what the fundamental truth of God seeing all things, God knowing all things, God seeing our hearts ought to do to us? Keep us in the fear of God all the day long. I think of the proverb again, let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. And that's what this truth ought to do to our hearts. It ought to affect us to fear God. Brothers and sisters, do we really fear the Lord? Are we mindful that even behind closed doors, when no one's around, God can see the heart. He, not, he just doesn't see what we're doing. We understand that man's ways are before the Lord, before the eyes of the Lord. He, he can see all of that. He can see what we're doing outwardly. But do we forget that he can see what's going on in the very depths of our hearts? That ought to put a fear in us. That ought to put the fear of God in us. And this is a fundamental truth that we see that the unregenerate care nothing, of, care nothing for. They don't care and acknowledge God for, for the most part. They don't care and, and, and acknowledge the fact that He can see into the very depth of the heart. This is why they carry on the way they carry on. This is why the world is doing what it's doing. And this is why Romans 1, amongst many things, says the, why, the reason why they behave so wickedly, so vilely, so filthy, is because there's no fear of God before their eyes. And there's much about the fear of God in the Scriptures, but I'm not going to labor on the fear of God. I just want us to understand one of the effects this fundamental truth ought to do to us is we ought to fear God, knowing He can see our hearts. He's not like you and I. He's not one that will be mocked or fooled. Can we hide from God? Is there any secret place that we can hide in and that God will not see? No. You know why? Because God sees straight past the outward, straight into the heart. Straight into the heart. The scriptures teach us time and time again how Jesus knew what was in man. He knew the thoughts of the heart. He knew those things that they uttered secretly and inwardly in themselves. And when he would address it, <laughs> you can imagine if you were thinking a thought, or something in your heart, and Jesus says, why are you thinking this? Always touches on the heart. God sees the heart. Now, I'm not going to continue to labor. We looked on how God knows the secrets of the heart in Psalms. God can see our deepest, darkest secrets. God can see the very depths of our souls, the very depths of our hearts. And then we also looked at how God sees the modest heart. God can see those that simply appear modest outwardly, but inwardly they are far from it. And He is desiring that, the, that, the, that this adorning would be in the hidden man of the heart. And we looked at that uh, for a little while. And then we kind of came to uh, the thrust of God's choice in 1 Samuel 16. And uh, when considering the heart, you are considering something that is not seen. Although, that is, although what is in your heart may manifest itself outwardly, simply dealing with the outward would never take care of the inward. That's why Jesus always deals with the inward first. It's like trying to deal with the fruit but not the root. And you've got to get at the root so the fruit would stop growing. And so this is the idea of dealing with the heart. God was looking for something specific that was not necessarily visible to the naked eye. It was an outward, uh, excuse me, it was an inward characteristic. And being even more specific, the characteristic was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And this is what he said. In, uh, in chapter 13, I want us to see this, First Samuel chapter 13, excuse me. And in First Samuel chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done, uh, excuse me, in, um, 
Let's go from verse 13. Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Forever. Verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. God was seeking a man after his own heart. And Acts chapter 13, I believe this uh, very clearly defines for us what is a man after God's own heart. Acts chapter 13, and notice with me in verse 22. And in Acts chapter uh, 13, excuse me, did I say 15? I don't know if I said 15. 13, yep. Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. And he says this, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. Notice this, which shall fulfill all my will. There are many things that we can perhaps define a man after God's own heart. But what we see clearly, I believe the scripture showing us here, that a man after God's own heart is a, is a man with a heart that wants to do everything God wants him to do. It's a man that has a heart that says, God is first and not me. You know, Saul began that way. Saul could not understand why he was being chosen to be the king. He was little in his own eyes and he thought, I'm, this, I'm from the smallest tribe and, and, you're, and, and I'm nothing, I'm, we're from a poor background and, you, and it was choosing him to be king. He was a humble man, he wasn't a proud man, but something took place in his heart later on where he forgot about that and he lost that humility and the kingdom was taken from him. It pleased God to pick Saul, the star, but then he regretted it later on because of how Saul turned and changed from what, from what he used to be. And so he made it very clear, I want a man after my own heart. And so Eliab passed by, that's not him. And the sons of Jesse, one after the other, passed by that were there present. Not him, not him, not him, not him. Until they all passed by and Samuel knew he was where God wanted him to be. He was in the right place at the right time and he was ready to do what God wanted him to do. And he was there to anoint a king and he knew it had to do with one of the sons of Jesse. But all the sons that were there were not God's choice. So Samuel just asked a logical question. Do you have any more sons? Oh, yes, yes, one more, but he's just, he's in the, he's in the field, he's a, shep, he's a shepherd boy, he's David. He's not a man of great stature. He's not a man that's perhaps comely as Eliab was, maybe not even like Storr. He's not a tall man, he was, he was a small man as far as we can perceive from the scriptures. He was, a, Eliab, a man of war. Saul, a man of war. David, just a shepherd boy. He just tends to the sheep. But God says, that's the man. And oftentimes, God's choice is not what we expect. We look at a man with many qualifications. We look at a man with much ability. We look at a man with great gifts, perhaps, and we think, surely this is the one. God says, not him. Not that one. And all I'm simply saying is God is establishing this truth, saying do not discern things simply by the outward. Don't judge matters and, and don't let your inspection be simply upon the surface. I want you to go deep like I do and I want you to go straight into the heart and what God wanted was a man after his own heart. Not, the light, not, not, not a choice that man would have chose, but it was God's choice. 
And God's choice is always the best choice. And the safest thing and the best thing you could ever choose to do is go with God's choice. And have a heart like this man. A man after God's own heart is a man that has set his desires and focus to fulfill all the will of God. It wasn't just because Saul had sinned that God stripped the kingdom from him. Because you and I know that David sinned and the kingdom wasn't stripped from him. Why wasn't the kingdom stripped from David but it was stripped from Saul? So you've got to understand something. God is looking on the heart. And you can see something in David that wasn't in Saul. Man after God's own heart, and I want to get wonderfully practical here, understands very simply that God's, God is first in every, in every area of life. God's will, not my will. God's way, not my way. God first, not me, not anyone, not anything first but God. And a man after God's own heart cannot purpose in fulfilling all the will of God if God is not first place in his heart. In his heart. And so we see here again what kind of man God wants. I see even Peter, I think an example somewhat of this in the New Testament, failed so many times the Lord, but the Lord addressed him every time. And the Lord was very firm with Peter. He was very sharp with Peter. He was very direct with Peter. And when, when Peter failed Jesus, he didn't go around saying, can you believe what he just said to me? He just called me Satan. That wasn't Peter. He didn't get offended. He didn't go around. He, got, he just got right. That was Peter because he had a heart after the Lord. He was the one that when Jesus said some hard sayings that they perhaps themselves didn't understand and when the many disciples no longer walked with Jesus, he, Jesus turned to his other disciples and says, are you going to go too? He says, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. A heart that is set on God first and doing all the will of God. We see even when Peter did not walk uprightly, even later on in the epistles where he was showing favoritism and Paul rebukes him sharply, he confronts him sharply saying, why are you doing this? Has not God received them? Why are you not receiving them in terms of the Gentiles? And, and he confronted, he withstood him to the face. You can imagine the confrontation, what it would have looked like if we were looking at this taking place. But Peter did not get offended. And we see even in an epistle later that he's encouraging the believers that uh, he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. He didn't get offended with Paul, he was still his beloved brother. Because Peter had a heart for God. And even though Peter failed and absolutely failed miserably, God saw his heart. And when we perhaps, because of the outward appearance, would have kicked someone like that to the curb, God went because he knew his heart and restored him. And restored him. And this is why we are so firm here in this church. And you know it, we never shut the doors we never, ever give up, give up on working with people and making things right and doing things right. But we see Peter's heart somewhat like this. Even, if Jesus, even when Jesus warned him, he still committed, he still fell for the temptation. But after the temptation, when God restored Peter, and Peter, when he was filled with the Holy Ghost, with absolute power, preached the gospel, in, on the day of Pentecost and many came to the Lord, we see how, how, the way the Lord just used Peter. And we see Peter, even we read from church tradition, as far as we understand, loved the Lord so much and was so humbled in such a way that he did not want to be crucified the way Christ was crucified because he felt unworthy to be crucified the same way. So they crucified him upside down. He was the one that we read of in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant. 
Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resid, resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accompanied in your brethren that are in the world. And prior to this verse, it was Peter that was teaching, be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. This is the heart we see in David. We see when David, even in all wickedness, did what he did, and it was wicked. When the word of reproof came, and when Nathan the prophet gave that illustration, and when that illustration brought, brought it so clearly the understanding to David's mind, and David clearly with the judgment he met, saw clearly, and Nathan said, you're the man. You're the man. This illustration, I'm talking about you, David. And you know what David did? We read about it in Psalm 51. Oh Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He saw his sin for what it is. And this is why we see a man of humility. We don't see a man of pride characterized by David. We see a man after God's own heart that although many a times with great wickedness not to undermine it, and I want to be very careful in what we take from the Old Testament in this sense and bring it into the church. But what I'm simply saying is this. He had a heart after God and he did not undermine his sin. It was dealt thoroughly with him. Excuse me, he dealt thoroughly with it. And it didn't change the fact that we can see in David that he was a man that loved the Lord. Read the Psalms and we see his heart that was after God. He was a man after God's own heart and desired to do the will of God, desired to be around those that God accepted and God loved and those that loved God. We see this heart of fulfilling all the will of God, no doubt in the life of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. And we see in His humanity and absolute humility, He cries out, let this cup pass from me. He asks His Father, let this cup pass from me. I always wonder what was in that cup and what the cup signifies brought great distress into the heart of our Saviour. And in His humanity, He says, let the cup pass from me. Yet in His heart, He resolved, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And this was the heart of our Saviour. Although He committed this thing to the Father, His heart was not my will, but thine be done. That's our example. He came down from heaven not to do His own will, but the will of him that sent him, he testifies. In John chapter 8, he says, For I do always those things that please him. We see this heart found in our Saviour Jesus Christ. And amongst many things, we see this is the image that God is conforming us to. The image of his dear son. And so I want to simply say this. You can't be a person that has a heart to do all the will of God if you haven't got a heart for God. You cannot be a person that has a heart to do all the will of God if you do not have a heart for God. Saul had a heart for his own kingdom. David had a heart after God. David wanted God and we read that constantly throughout the psalm that he wanted God. And we read of it in the Old Testament and the New Testament how so many people want, want, want the benefits but they don't, they don't want the one that gives those benefits. They don't want him if he doesn't give those benefits. It's almost like if he's not going to give me what I want then I don't want him. That's not a heart after God. That's not a heart that can fulfill all the will of God. If you want a heart and desire to have a heart to fulfill all the will of God, you must have a heart after God. We see it throughout Scripture. And we see it in real life. One commentator said this, For Saul, Saul was king. For David, the Lord God was king. Both David and Saul would have thought sacrifice important before the battle, but David thought it was important because it pleased and honoured God. Saul thought it was important because it might help him win a battle. 
for Saul, God would help him achieve his goals. For David, God himself was the goal. We see this heart in our Savior. We see this heart in Paul the Apostle that all he wanted was the favor of God upon his life. All he wanted was God. And you can't have a heart to do all the will of God if you don't have a heart after God. So many people have a heart after religion rather than getting right with God. And what religion gives you is a badge to identify with some sort of group. But you continue to live however you want as long as you have the religious facade on. Some have a heart after religion rather than being right with God. Some love creation but refuse to acknowledge the creator. There's no heart for God. We see even in the New Testament, we read it. People had a heart for tradition rather than the truth. And people wanted to stay with their traditions rather than change to the truth. And God wants us to have a heart for truth and not just tradition. You know why? Because God gave the truth and God overrides tradition. There's nothing wrong with tradition, but if it interferes with truth, God comes first. God forbid that our traditions should make void the word of God. People have a heart for tradition rather than truth. The Otrophies had a heart for preeminence rather than God. He desired to have the preeminence. He would not receive Paul the Apostle. He would not receive the brethren. And he refused the brethren to receive the brethren because he wanted the preeminence. He did not have a heart for God. He wanted the preeminence. We see Simon the sorcerer didn't have a heart for God. He had a heart for power. He wanted to give money to buy the Holy Ghost so he could have this power that he's seeing before him. Simon the sorcerer had no heart for God. He had a heart for power. The ten lepers, what did they want? Healing. We only see one that had a heart for God. All the others wanted was healing. People were following Jesus because he did miracles. They didn't have a heart for Jesus. Some people followed Jesus because he would feed them. They wanted food from him, but they didn't have a heart for Jesus. And many people want to go about their life, whether it's religion or not, doing whatever they want, but they don't have a heart after God. You know where I see this as well? I see it in the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler wanted heaven, but he didn't want Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he gave him the answer, follow me. And he walked away sorrowful. He wants heaven, but he doesn't want Jesus. And how many people, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. They want heaven, but they don't want Jesus. If it was anyone else, they'd go to someone else that can try and attain that form. And all I'm simply saying is the scriptures emphasizing a heart after God, a heart after the Savior. God knows my heart how much I emphasize service. God knows my heart how much I emphasize a full surrender. And I believe a full surrendered heart is a heart that's after God, no doubt. But God forbid that we should give our heart over to service and forget our first love. That would leave our first love getting caught up in service. And how many people have left their first love and are caught up in service? How many people love the ministry more than God now? God forbid that we should cease to have a heart after God. How many people love doctrine but not God? And they fight for doctrine but no heart after God. And although there may speak truth at times, it's dry. It's a heart after God. We see throughout all history... Men that differed in doctrine without a shadow of a doubt used by God. Why? Because they had a heart for God. It's not to reduce truth. Truth is important to God. But they had a heart for God. You cannot have a heart to fulfill all the will of God if you do not have a heart for God. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. People are so comfortable in their religious ways and forget that true religion is all about a relationship with God. That's what God came to give us. Yes, forgiveness of sins, but that we would have a relationship with Him. It's all about Him. A heart after God. 
A heart that does not undermine sin, but sees how we see how Saul dealt with it. He undermined it. Forgive me if I have sin, honor me now. We see how David dealt with it. Read Psalm 51 if you're not familiar with it. Pouring out his heart before God, knowing his sin before God, never undermined it. And we see how it's a heart that does care about doing things God's way. We see it again, David being the illustration. When the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back and they, they thought this was a good thing, but the problem was, was the, the, the heathen put it on a, a cart that was being pulled by, uh, by animals. And then when the Ark was rocking, Uzzah put his hand out to steady the Ark and displeased the Lord. And he smote Uzzah. And David got upset about that. But then we read later on, in First Chronicles, where David sent the ark to Obed-Edom because he, he, got, he, he says he feared the Lord. He was afraid of God after seeing that. But then we see later on, he went to call for the ark of God and he said it very clearly that this is the only way to carry the ark. And he brought it back to how God said to carry the ark. So you see a man who has a heart that might not do everything perfectly, but he has a heart to do everything perfectly. And a heart that wants to do everything perfectly is a heart that wants to do all the will of God. We see our, God, we see our man after God's own heart cares about doing things God's way. God's way. It's not just about as long as we get the ark back in the land. No, do it how God said to do it. Carry the ark how God said the ark ought to be carried. And we see this, we see it, this in application in Romans chapter 12, being applied to us on the basis that salvation has come to the Gentiles, on the basis of the mercies of God that He bestowed His mercy upon us in saving us from our sins. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your reasonable ministration to God. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we see it's a heart that cares about others more than self. And we see how, how David had a heart for the people of God. We don't only see it in David, we see it obviously in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ who had a heart after his own people. So much so when he looked upon them, he wept. And he wept because they were, they were a sheep without a shepherd. And this is a heart that, that, that cares about others. If there's someone that cares about others that we've got to learn from, it's our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. He looked all the way from heaven and understood and knew that we were dead in trespasses and sin. And knew that there was only one way. One way that we would be made alive. One way to have our sins forgiven. One way if we were going to have any hope of eternal life. And that he was to drink that cup for us. He humbled himself and came for us. He suffered and died not for his own faults or sins, but for ours, for us. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He drank that cup for us. He endured that cross, despising the shame for us. For us. That's a heart that cares about others. And it always uses Jesus as the comparison to have a heart for others. Saul cared not for others, he cared about his, himself. As a matter of fact, when those that were upright in the way and called things for what they were, were, were simply, they can see things for what they were and they weren't betraying David. They weren't uh, giving David over because they knew David did nothing wrong until Doeg the Edomite came along. But we see here how Saul, the, the scripture tells us even how Saul was having a pity party that no one was on his side and they're all for, no one, no one is for me, everyone's against me. A pity party because it was all about himself. And that's what happens when you think about yourself and not others. It becomes all about you. And when you start thinking about how everything is just going wrong for you and it's always me and 
everything bad happens to me and no one really loves me and no one cares for me. See, look, it happened again and me, 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 me. And when it's all about me, that's depressing. Mm. And that's why people get depressed mm. when it's all about me. And when Saul wasn't getting his way because he wanted David dead. He wanted to find David so he can kill him. You know why? Because he was a man that was actually serving him as his king and he was... Uh, mate, probably one of his best soldiers, one of his best men. He was the one that dropped Goliath and put the fear of God uh, in these Philistines' heart. He was the one that, by the grace of God, encouraged the, uh, the armies of Israel and showed that look, our God is not limited in any way. He was the one that was under the submission of Saul and, and pretty much a servant of Saul. And just because of one simple praise, one simple truth that Saul has slayed his thousands and David is tens of thousands what's the big deal you know what it was to Saul he got jealous no I want that praise why are they praising him more than like that why why don't I why don't they praise me like that and we see that's when he wanted David dead and that's it that's that's you see it taking place why God again stripped the kingdom from Saul something took place in the heart of Saul that displeased the Lord and it was downhill from there on out especially when we had an issue with David and he just wanted him dead. Even so much, David had a heart that feared God so much. The Bible tells us even when the Lord delivered Saul into his hands, he says, I'm not going to touch him. Because he feared God. He said, let the Lord do it. God anointed him to be king. So guess what? God's going to be the one to remove him from being king. He feared the Lord that much. David cared more about God than he did himself. David cared more about others than he did himself. But Saul was all about himself. And anyone that favoured him, I'm paraphrasing, but in, in essence, to, I'm pretty sure it was to Doeg, I'm paraphrasing, he says, bless you, bless you. You know, look at this man, look at him. He did well. Why? Because he took sides. That's all Saul wanted, take my side. But God doesn't care for sides. God cares about truth. Amen. And this is Saul wanted God. about sides. Everyone's against me. No one's for me. David just wanted God to be glorified. That's all it was about for David. That's why he left it in God's hands and let God deal with it. And even when God did deal, deal, deal with it, David did not rejoice. His heart was sorrowful and was broken over what took place. You know why? Because that's a man that has a heart after God, that's a man after God's own heart. He doesn't rejoice when his enemies fall. He doesn't rejoice when, when things take place to the people of God. Bad things happen. Even if it was judgment and justice, these things, although they may be right in, in terms of justice, but you've got to understand the heart here. Cares for others. And this is the exhortation in Scripture, for us to care about others more than ourselves. To love each other as Christ loved us. We see this in Philippians. Paul put it this way. I believe a man after God's own heart prefers others better than themselves. And Philippians says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Be kindly affection one to another in Romans with brotherly love in honour preferring one another. We see Paul's heart saying, look, think all things are lawful for me, but everything is not edifying. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And so we see Paul's heart as well. He, not, he did not seek to go to please uh, he says, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. We see the heart that's given over that prefers others better than themselves. They care for others better than themselves. Even Paul saying, I have liberties. I have things that are lawful, but it's not going to encourage you. So I am not going to be doing those things. That's the heart that prefers each other. Romans talks more about that as well, about the weaker brother and true faith. I even think of Abraham, preferred Lot over himself. And he said to him, you, which, you choose this way, I'll go that way. You choose that way, I'll go that way. 
This is a heart that's not about, it's not about me. It's not what about I want and what I can get, like it was in Saul. It's a heart like David that just wants the glory of God and wants God to be first and he wants to keep his heart there. Yes, we've been called unto liberty, brethren, but let's not use it for an occasion of the flesh, but the Bible says, but by love serve one another. Did not, could not Jesus have called 12 legions of angels? Could he not have called 12 legions of angels and stopped it then and there? But he didn't. You know why? He was thinking about us. He was thinking about us. He preferred others better than himself in that, in that sense. And so we see it in the heart of the Saviour. And we see it even spelled out in Romans, but, what, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a heart after God. And by way of prayer and application, I want us to turn to Psalm 139 in closing, and I'll finish here. There are many things in Scripture that are given as instructions. And uh, instructions... Uh, instructions by way of commandment and the command to love God and the command to do things with all our hearts and those commands are there but what you're going to find if you don't have a heart after God those things are going to be very grievous to you they're going to be very burden burdensome to you you take them almost as a religious duty rather than something to say that oh is this the will of God I want to do it and so this is what takes place when you don't have a heart after God. A heart after God. Psalm 139. There's much in this passage. But let's just drop down to the last two verses which we're very familiar with. Those that, um, that are often in the Word. And he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In the way everlasting. This is a prayerful psalm. This is a prayer that we can offer up to God knowing that He is the one that looks upon the heart. Yes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it but the Bible says in the very next verse in Jeremiah 17 10 that it's the Lord God that tries the reins and sees the heart and so God knows it because that's where God sees that's where God inspects that's where God looks so we can come before God and say search me O God the word search me is investigate think about the word think about when we open and the, the concept of opening an investigation it's not just an open, closed thing. It's an open and investigate. And he's saying, investigate me. Search me, O God. And know my heart. And then he says, try me. Try me. It's the idea of scrutinize me. Scrutinize me. Interrogate me. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see. The same word here is the same word for, it's the concept of inspect. Inspect, Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That word lead me is the word uh, straighten, not with the G-H, it's spelled, uh, it has the idea of uh, straighten as in S-T-R-A-I-T-E-N and, and what that simply means is, Lord, Make my path narrow. Make my path narrow and clear. This is the idea. Lead me. Make it narrow. And lead me. You set my path before me. Lord, I want you to lead me. That's a heart of a man that wants to fulfill all the will of God. And it is a narrow way, isn't it? There's a wide path and the scriptures teach us that that leads to destruction. But there is a narrow way 
and few there be that find it. And David's heart is saying, Lord, lead me. In essence, I want to say this, keep me on the narrow way. Because you know what's in the narrow way? The will of God. The favor of God. But you're going to despise that narrow way if you do not have a heart after God. Let alone to fulfill all His will. So let's come before the Lord even as we close. And prayerfully, I know there's a song uh, in the hymn books and we can sing it in closing in reference to search, inviting God to search us. And it comes from this psalm here, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We already know God knows all things and we already know God knows our hearts. But to invite Him to do this, I believe, is someone that has a heart for God, which is someone that wants to have a heart after God. One commentator said, if David can have our sins, then we can have his heart. And so God, I believe, desires us to be men and women that have a heart after God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen? Amen.